Turn with me one last time to the book of Mark. Today we are concluding our series in this book. I was looking past, over the past uh, messages in this series. It's been over a year since we've started the Gospel of Mark. A little bit of tag teaming. Pastor Caleb started it, got about halfway through, and I got the privilege of continuing the second half. And today we're concluding the Gospel of Mark in Mark chapter 16. And I think it's quite appropriate to, to look at this passage in the time of year when we are remembering the birth of Christ, when he's entering this world, and now looking at a passage of scripture that speaks of and points to his resurrection before he ascends back to the Father. We see the whole picture, the beginning and the end, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we have the privilege of rejoicing in that this morning. We're gonna be looking at the entire chapter of Mark today, and I'm gonna be reading through that in a moment, and then we're going to see how Mark concludes this gospel and as, what we should take away from it as believers as we rejoice in the hope of his resurrection. Let's look together. Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, had bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. In the, early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher in the rising of the sun. And they said amongst themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked up, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And the entering, in entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. And he said unto them, Be not affrighted, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, which is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold, the place where they laid him. But go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. And there ye shall see him, just as he said unto you. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher, for they had trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. Now when Jesus was risen early, the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she went and told them that, what had been with him, that they had been with him. And as they mourned and wept, and they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. After that, he appeared in another form unto two of them, as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it unto the rest of them, and neither believed they them. Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believes not shall, not, shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven, and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth, and preached everywhere, and the Lord working with them, and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. Let's pray and ask God to guide us as we look in his word this morning. Father, we thank you for the last chapter of your story. The climactic resolution of your saving work. That you sent your son as a baby in Bethlehem. And he grew and he matured and he lived a perfect life and he obeyed your word. And he set the example for us and he headed toward the cross 
to take our sins and the sins of the world upon himself. That he died and was buried, and as we see this morning, he rose again in victory. And it is because he lives that we can look ahead with hope and purpose in our lives. Lord, guide us and direct us as we look in your word, as we rejoice with your, in your great plan. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Last week, we ended with a bit of a cliffhanger, although most of you know the end of the story. The end of chapter 15 in the Gospel of Mark ends with Christ's death, him crying out loudly, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But yet, we see in the end of chapter 15, this ray of hope. We see the curtain in the temple torn from top to bottom. We see a Roman centurion confess that this man truly was the Son of God. But then chapter 15 ends with this dire note as Jesus is taken down off the cross and he's placed in a tomb and he is dead. And yet his, and his disciples, as they watch this and they see this, they are without hope. They are not expecting anything to happen next. In, in, in terms of this book, they are not expecting a chapter 16 at all. The story is over, their Messiah is dead, and now they're trying to pick up the pieces and figure out what to do next with their lives. But yet, as we read in our passage, it was not the end of the story. Christ's story does not finish with the cross. The next chapter is the resurrection. I mentioned last week that we as believers exist because of the cross. If it is not for the cross, we have no reason for gathering. The same thing I can say about the resurrection. If there was only a cross and no resurrection, we are hopeless. If our Savior is still dead, we have no reason to sing. We have no reason to celebrate his birth on Christmas. We have no reason for hope. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And today, even as we celebrate this Christmas time of year, I want us to ask ourselves, what difference does the resurrection make in our lives? And we see in our passage, I think, three ways that the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes a difference. First of all, the resurrection restores the depressed heart. As we look in our passage, beginning in verse 1, we see the women who were there witnessing the death and burial of Jesus Christ. Chapter 15 ends with the fact that they saw the place where they laid him. These women are going to the tomb with spices. And the whole mood of these first couple verses are completely dire, completely hopeless. And we see in these verses the hopelessness of death. Very early on a Sunday, the women who observed his burial headed out with spices to the garden tomb. None of them were expecting or hoping to see anything other than a, than a decaying corpse in a tomb. Spices were meant to cover the stench of decay. They were bringing spices because they knew Jesus was still dead. And so these spices were being brought to mask that odor. We see also a question that they ask. They say, who will roll away the stone for us? They didn't expect to see the stone rolled away. They, they, they hadn't even thought that far ahead. They, they get the spices and they walk to the tomb and it's almost halfway there. They're like, oh yeah, there's a giant stone in the way. Who in the world is going to roll this out of the way for us so we can actually anoint his body with these spices? They were ex fully expecting to look death in the face, to anoint the corpse of Jesus with spices, the least that they could do, right? Right? 
Their Savior, the Messiah, was dead. The least we can do is honor him in his death. Death had won. And in fact, the normal human experience for all of human history is death has the final word. Hebrews 2.15 describes us as those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There is nothing more hopeless than death. No matter how hard we try to avoid it, death comes for everyone. It's inevitable. It's an inevitable reality for every human soul, for all of human existence. 1 Corinthians 15, which we read the first 11 chapters of this morning, verse 22 says, As in Adam, all die. How many hearts are sorrowing this morning because of the hopelessness of death? Are you like these women with their spices going to the tomb, just trying to figure out how to make the best of a hopeless situation? Are you facing death in the face and thinking, this is not how it was meant to be. This is wrong. Is there any deliverance from the inevitability and hopelessness of death? In fact, most human beings on this planet are spending every waking hour simply seeking to distract themselves from the reality of death. It's why the, the, when it stares you straight in the face, it's troubling. These women approach the tomb thinking that death had yet again claimed a victim, and this time claiming the life of their Messiah, their rabbi, the one who gave them hope and purpose. How could someone so perfect die so horribly? And so Mark paints for us in these first verses a hopelessness of death. These women go to the tomb not expecting anything other than death. Yet in dramatic fashion, as we look in our passage in verse 4, Mark writes, And looking up, as they raised their sorrowful heads to look at the tomb, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. And for dramatic effect, Mark adds the phrase, and it was very great. It was large. This was a massive stone. And entering the tomb, they see a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Their alarm reveals this was the last thing they expected to see. Someone had rolled the stone away. And even more alarming, as they enter the tomb, a young man is sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe, and they're alarmed. Look at the words of the angel as, they, as the women are trying to process everything that just happened, and they're alarmed. They're scared. They did not expect to see this. Who is this young man dressed in white sitting at the edge of the sepulcher? And it's almost as if the angelic messenger helps these women process things in their alarm. Look in verse 6. Don't be afraid. Calm down. Remember why you're here. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. You can almost hear him walking him through the steps. You're here looking for Jesus, right? Well, remember what happened. He was crucified. He died. But he has risen. He is not here. And then he gives them the opportunity to look for themselves as it continues to sink in, as they continue to process. He says, well, look, see here where they laid him. You know, the stone was not rolled away from the tomb to let Jesus out. 
He shows up later in the middle of a room with the disciples, right? He's, he's in a resurrected body. He did, he's not hindered by something like a stone in front of a tomb. It wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. The stone is rolled away to, away to let the woman in, to see for themselves. Jesus had risen. And in the moment, their sorrow and dejection turned in, into complete shock, to complete alarm. The resurrection of Jesus had shattered the sorrow of the women. And I think of the verse that we read in 1 Corinthians 15, death has been swallowed up in victory. In these verses, we see an undoing of what has caused so much sorrow and hopelessness throughout the ages. In the classic book, The Lord of the Rings character, the hobbit Samwise Gamgee at one point reunites with Gandalf, whom he thought had died, and says these oft-quoted words, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? By conquering death itself, Jesus points to a future reality. In fact, the author of the book, J.R. Tolkien, elsewhere wrote, echoing the language of his literary character, the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus means that one day everything sad will come untrue. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 through 22, we alluded to this earlier. For as by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Through Christ, death itself is being undone. Hebrews 2, that talks about us being slaved to death. Jesus comes and uses death to defeat the one who has the power of death, the devil. Everything sad is becoming untrue. The resurrection of Jesus restores the depressed heart. If Jesus has conquered death itself, it means that his sacrifice on the cross was completely sufficient. It means that he lives to offer salvation for us. It means that he goes to prepare a place for us and offer us a future resurrection. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, if if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If it wasn't for the resurrection that you can live as moral of a life as you can. You can live as, as an upstanding and righteous life as possible. But at the end of it, death wins. If you have hope in Christ in this life only, you'll be miserable. The women approach the tomb having only had hope in this life only. But in their alarm, they saw the empty tomb. They saw that Jesus was undoing death. Has the curse of sin brought sorrow to your heart? Let me point to the greatest, most miraculous event in human history. Not only did the Son of God take your curse upon himself on the cross, died a death in your place, but he also rose again in victory. And Mark tells us he has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And the resurrection restores the depressed heart, the sorrowing heart, by undoing death itself. Do you have hope in that resurrection? Does it give you joy? Does it give you purpose when life and death are weighing you down? 
Secondly, we see that the resurrection of Jesus restores the defeated heart. As the angelic messenger talks with the women as they continue to try to process things, he gives them a mission. He tells them, go and spread the news. Go tell his disciples. But notice how it is phrased. He says, go and tell his disciples and Peter. Peter's one of the disciples. Why single him out? Well, do you remember what just happened to Peter? Turn with me back to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 27. In Mark 16, when he says, go and tell his disciples and Peter, he says, I'm about to go up to Galilee, before you to Galilee, just as I told you. Well, when did he tell his disciples that? He told them in Mark 14, verse 27. Jesus said unto them, all you shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter said unto him, although all shall be offended, yet will not I. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto you, This very day, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you shall deny me three times. Peter spake the more vehemently, If I should die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And you know what happens next in the story. Peter follows Jesus at a distance, goes into the courtyard of the high priest, and denies Christ three times. Not to a leader, not to a soldier, but to a servant girl. He completely fails. And you can imagine Peter in his heart after denying his Savior three times. Peter had failed. His claim of devotion was empty. He didn't deserve to be called a follower of Jesus. He had a defeated heart. And yet, when Jesus was raised to life, he says through the angel, make sure you tell Peter. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, and also in 1 Corinthians 15, we find that the resurrection of Jesus appeared to Peter separately. 1 Corinthians 15.5 says, He appeared first to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. While Peter had denied Jesus, Jesus had not denied him. And he was going to use Peter to build his church. And so he tells the woman, make sure you go and you tell his disciples, but make sure you tell Peter. He's planning to restore this fallen disciple. We see a reminder of his promise the message that the women are to deliver to the disciples and Peter is that he is going before you into Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. We saw where Jesus said this in Mark 14, verses 27 through 30. After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. At the same moment that Jesus predicted Peter's denial, he also predicted his resurrection in return to Galilee. In the same verses, he foretells Peter's failure and foretells his victory. Peter's denial did not catch Jesus by surprise, and he had already predicted the provision for Peter's weak devotion. The resurrection of Jesus restores the defeated heart. For those like Peter who have seen the failure of their own flesh, 
the defeat brought about by their own weaknesses and sin, the resurrection of Jesus provides new hope and restoration. Because he's raised from the dead, the Bible says he's able to give new life to the defeated heart. And it's now, as Christians, in his strength that we live and not our own. If there is no resurrection, not only is death not defeated, but neither is our own flesh. We would be left to our own strength. But right when Jesus predicts Peter's failure, he gives a promise of his resurrection, and it is the promise that overcomes our failure. So, some of you may be sorrowing, depressed over the reality of death. What does the resurrection of Christ do? It gives us hope. It gives us purpose. It gives us new life, knowing that death will be defeated once for all. Others of us are, are, are wallowing in our own failure, our own, our, own, our own weakness as we deny Christ with our lives. And the resurrection of Christ gives you new hope and a new purpose because it is his life at work in you and not your own. After a reminder of his promise, we see in the angel's words a return to discipleship. The angel tells the women that Jesus is going before them to Galilee. Why did Jesus want to meet them at Galilee? What, what's the significance about this place? Turn with me back to the very first chapter in the book of Mark. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 We read that after John, that John the Baptist had been arrested, Jesus came to where? Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Galilee was the place where Jesus began his preaching ministry. But if you look next in verse 16, we see something else that began in Galilee. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother, brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Not only is this the place where Jesus began his preaching ministry at the beginning of our book, but it's the place where he first called his disciples. And after he was raised, he said, I'll go before you to Galilee, the place where it all started. We read in the Gospel of John, of the account following the resurrection of Christ, that his disciples go to Galilee, not to see Jesus, not to see the resurrected Christ, but perhaps to get back to their old life. Listen to John chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. It says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, that's the Sea of Galilee, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. It's here at the Sea of Galilee where it all started, where the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom was first preached, where the disciples were first chosen. And it's here that Peter is just about to go from being a fisher of men to back to just a plain old fisherman going back to what he was good at before. He's definitely not good at being a disciple. Might as well go back to fishing. 
And throughout the Gospel of Mark, we, see witness, we, see, we have witnessed the failure and the spiritual blindness of the people culminating in the failure and denial of one of Christ's closest disciples. And yet, when Jesus conquers death, we immediately see a second chance given to a failed disciple. Have you failed? Have you been defeated? Do you realize that the resurrection of Christ, in his resurrection, his defeat of death, is proof that there is hope yet for you. Because believing in Jesus is to allow his life to become yours. To find your identity and your victory through what he has accomplished, not you. And if you were to continue in the Gospel of John, by the Sea of Galilee, what do we find? We find Jesus sitting down with Peter and asking him three times, the same number of times that Peter denied Jesus, and asking, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. It is only because of the resurrection that you have hope in failure. If it wasn't for that, you would be lost. The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives, restores the defeated heart. Before we continue in our passage, as we look in verses 9 through the end of the chapter, verse 20, I want to acknowledge one question that some of you may be reading as you go through the Gospel of Mark in your Bibles. If you're reading from an ESV or NASB or NIV, you probably notice something immediately following Mark chapter 16, verse 8. In the ESV, it says in brackets, some of the earliest manuscripts don't include these verses. The NASB, it says later manuscripts add verses 9 through 20. And maybe you think, whoa, what's going on here? Are these part of the Bible or not? This can be troubling to some. So let me allude to a much larger discussion uh, regarding these points and then hopefully alleviate any concerns. And I just want to note this before we continue on in our passage as it may be a question. Our New Testament is a miraculously preserved document with more manuscript evidence supporting its accuracy than any other ancient document and it's not even close. God has providentially preserved his inspired word through thousands of years of copying and recopying the New Testament text. And in the course of copying and copying, differences arise between manuscripts. And the vast majority of these manuscripts, differences are misspellings or different word order. But by observing all the manuscript evidence God has preserved, we can trace where the mistake happens following the lineage of the transmission of the text. And the reason why these notes are in some of your English versions is due to the fact that the oldest manuscripts we have, verses 9 through 20, aren't found there. They're only found in a little bit later. And this leads some to conclude that these were a later edition by someone adding truths from other Gospels to the end of the count to tie a bow to the end of the book. But this introduces a larger discussion known as something called textual criticism and the study of how we got our Bibles. And if you want to know more about this process, well, how do we know? How do we know for sure that we have the Scripture in our hands? That's an important question to ask ourselves. We want to have confidence in that. Come back tonight. <laughs> All right? If you want to know more about this process, if you still have questions, I would encourage you to come back this evening. We're going to explore this more in depth. But instead, in the meantime, let me tell you why I'm not worried or concerned about verses 9 through 20. And it's that everything we find in these verses, we find elsewhere in Scripture. The removal of these verses wouldn't change anything about our doctrine. The addition of these verses don't add anything to our doctrine. So if there is going to be a passage in question, I'm glad it's this one. Because it does not change anything about the truth of God's Word. In fact, it actually increases my confidence that we have. The word of God. But as we look at these last few verses, 9 through 20, there's one thing highlighted 
that, I see, that we see in all the Gospels, including this one, and it is the doubt and unbelief of the disciples. Did you catch that when we read through verses 9 through 20? So thirdly, I want us to see that the resurrection of Jesus restores a doubtful heart. We see in the verses Jesus appears physically to Mary and the other women. Matthew 28, 9 also tells us this. He appears to two men on the road to Emmaus. We find this story in Luke 24, 13 through 35. And then finally, to the 11 disciples, which we also see in Luke 24, 36 and following. But what do we find with each one of these appearances? Verse 11, when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. The disciples were doubtful. When Jesus appeared to the two on the road, they went back and told the rest of the disciples, but they didn't believe it. And we read of this exact same thing in Luke 24, 10 through 11. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, the Mary, the mother of James, and other women who were with them, who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. The disciples were skeptics. They said, that's an idle tale. You're, just, you're making this up in your own mind because you, you want it to be true. And finally, when Jesus appears to the 11 disciples in verse 14, it says, Afterward, he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. The disciples were so accustomed to death, having the final word, that they didn't bring to mind anything that Jesus had said previously about his resurrection. Has that ever happened to you? The reality of death and the inevitable, inevitability of it causes you to forget the very promises of God. And you elevate your experience and what you've seen to be true over what Christ has told you to be true. This is what the disciples are doing. They say they don't, they don't bring to mind anything Jesus has said previously about his resurrection. We saw this in the Gospel of Mark, that time and time again, Jesus says, I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried, and after three days, I'm going to rise again. He said it clearly and explicitly. And every time, what are the disciples doing? Hmm, I wonder what he means by that, right? He can't, he can't really mean that he actually rises from the dead. It's got to be some, some hidden meaning in there. And Jesus, time and time again, tells them plainly, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to rise from the dead. But the disciples doubt. They do not believe. Finally, when Jesus appears to them and shows them his hands and his side, they see in belief. You know, you may have a hard time believing that the resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact. Well, let me tell you something. So did his own disciples. They had doubtful hearts. But the resurrection of Jesus changed all that. In fact, if you have a heart of doubt this morning, let me point you to three things that show how the resurrection overcomes that doubt. To those who doubt that this account is accurate, that Jesus actually physically rose from the dead, the claim is the Gospels are simply fabrications made up by the disciples in order to form a movement or a religion. Let me show you why that can't be the case from Mark chapter 16. Number one, the unreliable witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. What do I mean by this? Who first saw where Jesus was buried? The women. Who first saw Jesus rise from the dead? The women. In Judaism, women were not considered reliable witnesses, and they could not testify in court. 
So you think, well, Aaron, that's kind of counting against what you're saying. Doesn't that make an uncredible claim? Well, think about it. If you're a disciple making up a story about Jesus being raised from the dead in the context of Judaism, would you make women have, be the initial eyewitnesses of the empty tomb? I don't think you would. That would discredit their, your story in the eyes of those around you. If you're going to make up a story that sounds credible, you have credible witnesses. So why are women the first ones to see the resurrected Christ? Because that's what happened. <laughs> the disciples are not coming up with the best version of a story that will help people believe they are recounting actual events. Women saw the tomb because that's what happened. This is a historical reality. The second thing that points to the truth of the resurrection is the doubting disciples. Remember, disciples are writing these accounts. Do they paint themselves in a very good light? They really don't. If you are fabricating a story to validate your role as the founder of a new religion, how would you describe yourself? Well, as the first to believe, right? And yet the disciples describe themselves as the last to believe. The women believe, the two on the road believe, and when they come and tell the disciples, they still don't believe. They paint themselves as dense, blind characters who show less faith than a Roman centurion and the women at the foot of the cross. Why would they describe themselves in this way? Because that's what happened. And then thirdly, we see transformed lives. We read in verses 15 through 18 of Mark chapter 16 of the commissioning of the disciples as they are called to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And upon Jesus' ascension into heaven, verse 19, we read these words in verse 20, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. You can say that Mark 16, verse 20, is a summary of the entire book of Acts. We see disciples being willing to suffer imprisonment torture, and even death for the message of a resurrected Jesus. If you made up a story of a resurrected Jesus, would you be willing to die and be tortured for that message? Their transformed lives of the disciples, the commission that the resurrected Jesus points, gives to them, points to the reality of the resurrection. The resurrection was powerful enough to convince even those who were the greatest skeptics, to overcome the doubt and disbelief of his closest followers, and it changed their lives. If this story is false, then we are of all people most to be pitied. We should go home and forget this ever happened. We should find something else to do with our lives. But if this story is true, and it is, then it changes everything. I want you to ask yourself, how has the resurrection of Jesus Christ changed your life? Is it just a story to you? We profess the resurrection, we sing songs like He Lives, and we profess it to be true. But if we looked at our lives, would we see a life that is actually transformed by the resurrection? Or... Would it, do we act as if it is an idle tale by how we live? Because he lives, 
The sorrow of death is being undone. You have hope. Death itself isn't strong enough to defeat you. Because he lives, your failure, your weakness, is swallowed up in his victory, as we see in the life of Peter. And because he lives, I can confidently proclaim the gospel to the world around me because we profess a truly risen Christ. This is a historical fact that changes the course of history. This is his grand story. Jesus came as the Son of God. He lived and suffered and died for your sins and mine. And then he rose again. He left the tomb. And it is because of that singular fact that you and I have a reason for living today. We live because Jesus lives. As we've seen through the Gospel of Mark, that this is his story. But here's the incredible truth about Christianity. That as we profess faith in Jesus Christ, when we look to Christ and say, I believe that you died, was buried, and rose again for my sins, his story becomes our story. That we are united to his life, we are united to his burial, we are united to his resurrection, so that our sins are paid for on the cross, and we can walk in newness of life. So in a sense, if you look at our title screen, we see this is my story crossed out to make his story. But when his story is completed, we can erase those lines and say it truly is my story. Because Christ has offered me his life. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also shall appear with him in glory. His story becomes yours. Have you placed your faith in Christ and Christ alone? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the reality, the truth of the resurrection. Without it, we have no reason to sing. We have no reason to have hope. But Lord, you give us these accounts in Scripture of historical reality. As miraculous as it is, irrefutable and unavoidable. And since you live, we can face tomorrow. Lord, for those that are sorrowing this morning, give them the hope that your resurrection provides. To those that have failed, that are defeated because of their own weakness and their own sin, give them restoration through your resurrection. And to those who are doubting, disbelieving what you have done, show them how your resurrection shatters their doubts and give them reason to live. We thank you, Lord, for your gospel. We thank you for your story that you revealed to us through your word and that it can become our story.